Our scripture reading today is Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Katie. It's good to see all of you. My name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church in town. This morning, I have the privilege of, and this happens once in a blue moon, of going back and forth between campuses to preach. Um, so some of you uh, may have driven past me, or I've driven past you flying on the way here. Uh, but it's a sweet time for me to be able to see uh, the central campus and actually say hello to them for us. Uh, so I enjoyed doing that this morning and uh, seeing everybody over there. And welcome to CPC in town. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we're looking at a passage this morning because it's um, one that in a lot of ways, it's kind of funny to me because it almost needs no sermon. <laughs> uh, it, it does and it doesn't. It's such a beautifully rich passage asking the questions that we ask. Uh, am I loved? Is love something that stays? Am I loved? Is, is love permanent? Does it stay? I remember when I was, uh, somewhere before my sixth grade year, and I was swimming in the pool with my dad. And uh, as a kid, I was just enjoying the summer days that were kind of running out. And I thought, wow, this is, I'm gonna enjoy the last few days of summer. And my dad seemed a little heavy uh, just in terms of his countenance, his, he just wouldn't, you know, normal. And, uh, you know, as we kind of swam on, all of a sudden after some time in a break in the fun and conversation, he let me know that he and my mom were getting separated and that they would be divorced sometime after. And I remember experiencing that event as a sixth grade boy and then, you know, on in middle school and high school some of you have been in those places before, as it would be one of many events that would form the grid of my life to answer those questions of am I loved and does love stay? Every single one of you in this room has those events, whether it's a, a you would you know, stick a flag in it and say this is a monumental event, 
But every moment in between those monumental events answers that question. It, it is a part of the grid, a part of the glasses that you wear to make sense of this world and answer those questions. Am I loved and does love stay? I even remember after that, certain parts of my personality, um, as I'm sure yours, that would grasp onto things of performance, uh, being good, uh, things that would form in me ways that I could get love in this world, but always the problem was the permanence of that love. Every time I experienced being loved in a moment, it would never last. And I would have to go back to that place over and over again to be loved. It is a performing kind of art, even if you're here, especially if you're uh, in an artistic or, or uh, performance position as well, you would know that that feeling of trying to keep it is so difficult. And there's an article written um, in the Atlantic some time ago called Wooed by Freedom. It talks about this impermanence of relationship. Listen to what Peter Berkowitz says. He says, the lessons of impermanence and the systems of separateness intertwine, constantly complementing and reinforcing each other, quickening and emboldening familiar human proclivities. They encourage us to distrust others because we attribute to others the same attachment to the freedom to do as one pleases that we discern in ourselves. They impel us to suppose that others are withholding themselves from us because to safeguard our independence, we routinely withhold a part of ourselves from them. They goad us to suspect that friends and lovers are secretly devising schemes for a fast getaway because we are carefully and covertly formulating such contingency plans all along. That we all have this question of am I loved and, 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 and this self-protective nature of being loved and yet knowing that it, it may not stay. So I have to kind of build this system for myself where I can try and keep love. We do it in a million different ways. And isn't that the question of our culture? If there is one thing that is a theme in our culture of every song, every movie, every part of what we do in our jobs and school and life, it is love. That word, we all fight over what it means. We all fight for having it. We all discuss it, describe it. We wish we had it. And it is a distinctive mark of what Paul is trying to get at here. See, Romans 8, as we've talked about, and this is the, actually the final passage, final installment of Romans 8, is considered the gem of gems in the Bible. Romans is this great theological treatise. It lays out uh, uh, to a group of Christians in Rome, which Paul never actually got to meet, to tell them, here is what it means to live in Jesus, to be in Jesus and live in Jesus. And when he gets to Romans 8, which is kind of this pivotal moment, he just moves from chapter seven to eight, which they're talking all about the law and how we fail and how we are weak. And yet in Romans 8, it's all about assurance. It is to assure you. It is to assure you and I, and isn't that, if there's one thing we want with love is assurance. Aren't we assured that we're loved? He begins with what? No condemnation. And he ends with no separation. And that's exactly how he almost finishes this passage itself. No condemnation and no separation. And Paul is gonna answer two questions for us this morning. Am I loved? 
and does love stay? Am I loved and does love stay? Does it? Is it real? Can we count on it? Is it going to remain? Well, he begins by saying, am I loved? And he does this in a million ways. Actually, there are five questions that Paul asks in this passage. But if you look at them, they can be grouped in these two categories. And when it asks, am I loved? He begins with a lot of things. He says, <clears throat> says who can? Almost over and over. He says, who can, it, it, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge? Who can, who can bring any charge against us? Again, he says, who can condemn us, right? Verse 34, who is to condemn? Over and over, he's trying to lay out this, this, this idea for you, this understanding, legally, even in a sense, that who can do it? Who can bring any charge against you? But that's what we need to, to understand is he's drawing us back into that courtroom. We've discussed the fact that Paul is a very good lawyer. And what he wants us to do is feel the sense of walking into that courtroom. A sense of getting in there and, the, and being uncomfortable, maybe even uncomfortable on these wooden benches that somewhat feel like that. And sitting before a judge and seeing witness after witness after witness, whether they're real or perceived, say, you don't measure up. Every charge that is against you, everything about the way you look, the way you think, the way you act, what your past is like, your friendships, your marriage, your intellect. I mean every single charge. And here's the scary thing. Not all of those charges are untrue, are they? Most of them, many of them we wrestle with are true about ourselves. And yet we condemn ourselves for them. Even in a passage that begins no condemnation, right? It means we, though, still are trying to make sense of what it's like to sit in that courtroom and look at that judge and to hear those things from those witnesses over and over speak to us every day when we wake up and every time we go to sleep. I may have mentioned it before, one of my favorite books that he's ever written, Tim Keller wrote a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Tim Keller's a pastor in New York City. He's written several books, but this one is a very, very, very teeny tiny book. It's only like maybe 40, 50 pages. Could read it in maybe an hour. And he says this about what it means to be in that courtroom, and it has been one of the most profound things I think I've heard. Listen to what he says. We look to that ultimate verdict every day in the situations and people around us. That means every single day we are on trial. Every day we put ourselves back into that courtroom. Every single day. Every day we are looking for a verdict. We are searching for a verdict for all those things. We're sitting in that bench, looking at the judge, hearing the witnesses against us, and we're thinking, how am I gonna get out of this one today? How am I gonna prove myself worthy today? How am I gonna put myself forward as the one who's okay? Here's what's amazing about what he says here. He says, if God is for us, even that word for, the preposition over and over is used, even the prepositions that Paul is using here are to say, you have an advocate. You are loved. What charge can stand? He says, even with all of those charges that may be true, he says, no accusation will stand. 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for, meaning if he is for you, every witness that comes up is dismissed. Every accusation that is brought forward is dismissed. All the accusations are taken out. And here's how we know that. Because he says in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Paul is even drawing back to the Old Testament with language of sparing his own son. This is even drawing back from Abraham and Isaac back in Genesis 22, all the way to the front of the Bible to tell people even far back, even that language to say, God has not spared anything in you being acquitted for your guilt, nothing. And I think we need to see this for a second. I think we need to camp out on what does it really mean that God did not spare his own son? Because I think we need to first know that every condemnation, every charge, he starts to put on another person. To not spare means that Jesus went forward and, was, and took every part of this. Look, many of you in this room may have walked with Christ before may would say, I'm a Christian. Some of you in this room may be just coming back in or were invited this morning to hear. I want you to hear, if you're here learning of Christianity, hear the basic tenet of Christianity. And if you're here and you follow Jesus, if you're hearing what I'm about to say about Jesus, God not sparing his own son and you're saying, yeah, yeah, I've heard that, you don't know what it means to be loved. This is not a joke. This is not touchy-feely. We need to enter back into that because we still believe condemnation and he has not spared his son. Do you understand Christianity is not unconditional? Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying God's love is not an unconditional love. Did you know that? Every single condition is laid and every cost is laid on Jesus. It is all conditioned on another. That, that is so unbelievably important because he did not spare his own son. He's saying that everything that you would say, the witnesses, the charges against you is laid on him. He does not spare it. He puts it on him. Everything that is said, every corner of your heart, every part of your mind, all the things that you hate to think about and you don't even think about are put on him. It is conditioned upon his son. This is why so many people even in, in philosophy think Christianity is crazy. You may not know this, but outside of these circles that you may run in, and maybe you're here in this room and you believe this, some people think, is this cosmic child abuse? Is this just God slapping down his son and a bunch of people just saying, oh, we'll follow that. But it's not because this is why God specifically had this plan for his son and his son says, I do not go unwillingly, but I lay my life down. Jesus actually takes up the plan as the son. Different than Abraham and Isaac where Abraham said, we gotta make a sacrifice and he puts the wood on his son's shoulders and his son doesn't even know where he's going at the time until he gets to the top and Abraham is about to sacrifice him and God stops it. Completely different. Jesus knows the whole time and God never stops it. 
and he does not spare his own son. We need to grasp this relational, magnificent work of a father giving his son. I don't know if you remember uh, Tony Dungy, who was uh, the first African-American coach actually to coach in the Super Bowl. And amazing coach, he's an analyst today, he coached for the Colts, uh, coached Peyton Manning, and still is on TV quite a bit. Before the Super Bowl where the Colts won, he was actually called to speak in an event called AIA, Athletes in Action, you may have heard of it. It's a, a kind of fellowship of Christian athletes type event. And as he did, he actually spoke about his three sons. And the pinnacle of that, that, that moment when he talked about them was his final son who actually had died just that year, right before. And as he described it in, you could tell, very difficult way, he talked about his son as one of the most sensitive and compassionate people, always looking to others to care for them. And he said, this is so painful to lose my son. I want to describe to you what has happened since that event. He said he received several letters from people after they heard him and at his son's funeral speaking and that they were inspired to reach out to their own children and, and make amends. He said his son was an organ donor and through this, there were two people given new corneas and other people able to see again. A girl who knew his son and was not a follower of Jesus, but, but through his death and watching the family became a Christian, became a follower of Jesus. And he knows that this is beautiful and it benefited a lot of people, but listen to what he said. This is so honest and so powerful. He said, but I know all this, that, that if God had a conversation with me about this, and he said, I can help some people see, I can heal some relationships, I can save some people's lives eternally, but I would have to take your son to do it. You choose. Tony Dungy said, I know how I would answer, that I'd say, no, I'm sorry. I would not give you my son. And he said the awesome thing. Awesome thing about God that's different is that he chooses yes every time. He actually says yes. This is not a joke. This is not poetry. It's the fact that he came in flesh and did it. If we are sitting here this morning and we're just to talk about love and the Bible and Christian things, this is worthless. Paul says that. If he's saying it is worthless to do this if it is not Jesus, as he says, who died and rose again, who is out of the grave fleshly, who now intercedes. It says that he intercedes for us. <clears throat> and he's at the right hand of God, verse 34. To intercede means that in every way that you believe those witnesses, fleshly, that you do not measure up, that you are not beautiful, you're not smart, you're not great, you're not worth being loved in any way. Do you know why Jesus came in flesh? Do you know why Christianity is distinct? Friends, if you're here and you don't know Christ, please hear who he is. The reason it is distinct is that Jesus didn't say, I'm just a good teacher to teach you love. He said, I am going to be love. 
And I'm going to be that flesh that you cannot take on, that you're condemned for in every way and not just die for it, but rise again, sit next to God. And in every way, those witnesses day to day, moment by moment, and even at the last judgment day, when the greatest and loudest voice of judgment comes against you, Jesus will turn to the Father and say, innocent, acquitted, loved. The courtroom has become a setting for you to not just know you're innocent, but that you are loved. That no accusation can stand. And that's the the question that we ask, am I loved? God says, the only way you can know, the only way you can know that is if love is permanently set in another. It is stuck on someone else because you can't hold on to it. Your hands aren't strong enough. Isn't this why he uses words? And I mentioned this last week. Again, predestination and election. They're not words to cause arrogance and inactivity. They're supposed to encourage us as this chapter is about assurance that his grip of love is never opened. He loves you and it has nothing to do with any of those witnesses. It's because it's laid on his son. It's through another and we have to believe that. And that is how we're loved. But the question really remains, does it stay? Okay, great. Does that inspire you? Good, okay. But the real question is, does love stay? I may have mentioned this to you before in in passing, but one of my um, favorite um, articles, I guess it's an essay by C.S. Lewis, it's called Meditations in a Tool Shed. It's kind of a funny deal from him. And he actually said he was walking on the grounds of, around his home and one day just kind of passing time, maybe just stretching his legs. He decided to walk um, by into the garden and he saw a tool shed and he just you know, happened to go into it. The door closed behind him and, and at the top, this crack in the door, he could see this beam of light shooting down and dust particles and things flying through it, you know as you can kind of see through maybe a window or in a car. And then he, all of a sudden, he decided to move and kind of look at where the light's coming from. And when he did, the light went over his eyes and everything else went dark. And he could see through the crack in the top of the door and, and he said he saw these t- trees waving in the sun 90 million miles away. And he, he realized something that was so different. He said there's a difference in looking at the beam and looking along it. There's a difference between talking and describing what love is and experiencing it. To know what love is, to let it envelop you and everything else fall away. And that actually is what this movement is. The first portion of this text is for us to know God's love is set on you permanently. We can look at it. There is Jesus' love set. The second part when he begins to say, does love stay? When he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ is looking along the beam and letting it soak into you. And this is where we need to ask the questions that he's asking. All these things. He even begins with this first list In verse 35, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword. He's asking, what are the fears, 
I mean, we could break down each of those, but let's ask, what are the fears that you and I have that would separate us from God's love and Jesus? And he thinks of every single one. In fact, this list is not one that he's just trying to think of. In 2 Corinthians, another letter that Paul wrote, he actually is quoting from his own experience. That he has experienced all of these things. He's saying, who who shall separate us? I've experienced tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and almost sword, which is execution. What are the fears that you and I have of losing the love of God and Jesus? Tribulation, distress, talking about circumstances. Does love stay in the midst of your day going well or not well? How much do we measure our love in God through, in Jesus by how great we're doing in our jobs, how well things are going around us or not well? Or do we look back and say, my circumstances are a mess. Am I doing something wrong? What's wrong with me? But what does the Bible say? The measure of that is not in your circumstances. It has to be outside of something that's, that's fluctuating every day. Or persecution, personal attack. Does love stay when you find yourself on the end of someone personally attacking you? Or maybe even not, just you find yourself persecuted internally, just over and over the guilt and shame. Does love stay? Or does it go with the whim of who is verdict you're listening to, as Tim Keller said earlier? What about even physical lack, famine or nakedness? Does love stay when we don't have what we need, when we lack? Does love stay? Danger, sword, final, does love stay when we find ourselves close to the end? If there is one event right now that's going on that probably captures most all of these things, it is the flood in Houston. We actually have relatives there family, close family there. And I'm not just seeing video that is something on uh, some other news channel. I'm watching video from my relatives' phones taken, sent to us of Black Hawk helicopters flying in over their roofs. People driving up and down streets, flooded with boats or jet skis trying to rescue people. People are asking the question here, does love stay? They're asking the question, am I really loved if God is taking care of it? I mean, all these things that they're facing, is this real? Is this thing tangible? Don't we need to have something that is outside of floodwaters to remind us of that? Because here's the, the distinctive of Christianity. It is so difficult to answer the question of, did, the, did Houston do something wrong? No. Is there something that, that those people are, are not good enough that God is frowning upon them? No. What is the measure by which people can look at that event? It is only in Jesus. And they may not have an idea of why that is. They, we don't have an answer of why a lot. But you know what God does? He sends his son in flesh to say, this love on you doesn't leave. 
in the midst of your persecution, your trials, it is gonna be set because he's the one. Who is one who comes to experience that list of fears? Jesus experiences every single one, including the last one, his own execution. And the only way we can make sense of huge, colossal, horrible events like that isn't by trying to see if we can wrap our heads around whether we understand whether things are good or bad, whatever. It's saying that God, different than anything else, than just saying you're loved, it enters into the love. This is why people are getting on boats that love Jesus and are driving into those areas that smell rank of mold and filth because they know that there's someone different. That there has to be a love that stays. There has to be something above the waters of the flood that will never be washed away and no circumstance can change. It has to be in a person set apart from that in Christ. And he moves from there to this list of realities at the end, which I think is fascinating. If it's one thing to deal with our fears is love stay. It's another thing to deal with the realities of our fears. And he goes with these pairings and he begins with Verse 38, that neither death nor life, these modes of existence that we live in. Are you all afraid of death? Are you all afraid of life? Wouldn't it be amazing to know that we aren't just encouraged in love to do both, but that we have a savior. Here's the interesting thing. Jesus comes to live and to die so that we have an advocate in both. What can separate us? Nothing. If this savior comes to live in those modes of existence, he does so, so that we cannot at all be loosened from that grip. Angels, nor rulers, nor powers. He's talking about the spirit world and possibly even the earthly realms. How many of us in this room put more dependence on our love in God with who's in power? Not just presidentially, I mean even spiritually in our minds. Who's the one truly in power? Who do we trust in? Who's the one who rulers bowed their knee to? And yet he put himself on a cross. Jesus. What do we, what, what other things present he says, or things to come. Time, space, the, the time. Does time make you think, I'm gonna lose this love? What about height nor depth, spatial things? Look, God's love is not a long distance relationship. There's nothing that can separate you from him. There's no ocean, no continent, nothing. Many of you may have even sent a child to college or maybe you're here at college and your parents are like, please call me. There's nothing like that here. God's love for us is set right on us. There's no measure of, of distance. And it says nothing in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ. I wanna reference the eclipse even though it was a, you know, a couple weeks ago. Because it, it reminds me of this. And Annie Dillard who wrote a long article on her experience, 
who's a poet, wrote a long article and author, their experience of the eclipse, and some of you may have read this, but I wanna read a portion of that to you to think about this as we're talking about it. She said this, it began with no ado. It was odd that such a well-advertised public event should have no starting gun, no overture, no introductory speaker, and that sound like our eclipse today. I should have known right then that I was out of my depth. Without pause or preamble, silent as orbits, a piece of the sun went away. We looked at it through welder's goggles. A piece of the sun was missing. In its place, we saw empty sky. I had seen a partial eclipse in 1970. A partial eclipse is very interesting. It bears almost no relation to a total eclipse. Seeing a partial eclipse bears the same relation to seeing a total eclipse as kissing a man does to marrying him or as flying in an airplane does to falling out of an airplane. Although the one experience precedes another, in no way does it prepare you for it. You know what we have in front of us here with this table? We have an event that was set. And even though this table is set every week, this table is unlike that glorious moment where three enormous bodies of space lined up for our eyes to see a hole in the sky. The gospel is actually that word gospel. Evangel means there was an event that was set and it doesn't go away. The reason we know that as we proclaim his death, we're saying that he loves us. And when we say until he comes again, we're saying that his love is permanent. If he came once to show how much we're loved and he sits next to the father, don't you know when he comes again, we will know for sure that his love does not go away. Let's stand now, if you will. Let's read a prayer for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost.